Back in the day, cholangitis was known as hepatic fever. This was first described by Dr. Jean-Francois Charcot in the 1880s. And yes, this is the same Dr. Charcot who described the well-known eponymous triad comprising of fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice, which occurs in cholangitis. A few years later, surgeons Dr. Reynold and Dr. Dargan further expanded this triad by adding altered mental state and shock to the clinical presentation. This was described as Reynolds' pentad. More recently, the Tokyo guidelines were developed, providing diagnostic criteria and severity grading for gallstone diseases such as acute cholecystitis and cholangitis. Today, our patient has gallstone disease, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Biliary Off-Track, an approach to cholecystitis and cholangitis. All right, time for a minute physiology. As you know, bile is sterile and is produced and secreted by the liver. It flows down the biliary tract and reaches the small intestine during meals to help with fat digestion. Between meals, the bile is stored and concentrated in the gallbladder. When fatty meals are consumed, the gallbladder contracts and pushes bile through the cystic duct, where it joins the hepatic duct and forms the common bile duct, or CBD. Further down, the CBD is joined by the pancreatic duct, and ends up opening into the duodenum through the sphincter of Audi. Occasionally, stones can form within the gallbladder or the biliary tree. Risk factors for stone formation, most often cholesterol stones, include age, female sex, obesity, pregnancy, and multiparity, as well as total parenteral nutrition. Other types of stones include pigmented gallstones. Black stones occur as a result of the accumulation of unconjugated bilirubin, such as hemolytic disease, and brown stones are associated with bile stasis in the context of infection. Obstruction of the gallbladder outflow will lead to inflammation in a process known as acute cholecystitis. This is most commonly caused by a gallstone obstructing at the level of the gallbladder neck or cystic duct. The resulting bile stasis can lead to a buildup of intraluminal pressure, ischemia of the gallbladder wall, inflammation, and infection. This is the most common gallstone disease. If the obstruction is further down the biliary tree at the level of the CBD and a superimposed ascending infection occurs, it can lead to a life-threatening condition known as cholangitis. This obstruction is most often caused by a gallstone, up to 70% of the time, but could also be due to cholangiocarcinoma, pancreatic cancer, external compression, or iatrogenic causes, such as an obstructed stent. The most common pathogens isolated in these conditions include E. coli, Klebsiella species, Enterococcus, and Enterobacter. It can also rarely involve anaerobes, such as Bacteroides fragilis and Clostridium perfrigens. Cholangitis can quickly become detrimental as the buildup of high pressure in the bile duct can lead to the translocation of bacteria into the vascular system, resulting in bacteremia. 
This, combined with a systemic release of inflammatory mediators, can lead to hemodynamic instability, with rapid progression to septic shock. All right, now that we've covered the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. You are asked to assess a 52-year-old man with severe right upper quadrant pain, jaundice, and fever. A few history points should come to mind when assessing these patients. Patients with acute cholecystitis can present with right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting. They may report a history of biliary colic or a history of postprandial abdominal pain, particularly after a meal rich in fat. You may find a positive Murphy sign on physical exam. Patients with acute cholangitis may not provide you with a significant history, as their level of consciousness may be altered. If they do, they may give you a story of nausea, vomiting, high-grade fever, and abdominal pain. In conjunction with jaundice, these symptoms represent Charcot's triad. The presence of Charcot's triad has a 95% specificity for cholangitis, but is only sensitive 25% of the time. The clinical course eventually progresses to shock and altered mental status, which are the other two components that help comprise Reynolds pentaden. Laboratory findings will typically reveal hyperbilirubinemia in acute cholangitis, but may not be very remarkable in acute cholecystitis. This is why both conditions remain clinical diagnoses, typically relying on a combination of elements, ranging from the history, physical exam, laboratory findings, and imaging findings. The 2018 Tokyo guidelines on diagnostic criteria of both acute cholecystitis and cholangitis can help you in making the diagnosis. For acute cholecystitis, diagnosis relies on the presence of some of the following elements. One, evidence of local inflammation, as demonstrated by localized abdominal pain or a Murphy sign. Two, evidence of systemic inflammation, as demonstrated by fever, elevated white count, or a CRP. And three, characteristic imaging findings. The presence of local and systemic inflammation constitutes a suspected diagnosis, whereas the presence of all three makes for a definitive diagnosis. In the case of acute cholangitis, the diagnosis relies on the presence of some of the following elements. One, evidence of systemic inflammation, which can be clinical, such as fever, rigors, or chills, or laboratory-based, for instance, a leukocytosis or elevated CRP. Two, evidence of cholestasis, which can be clinical, for instance, if a patient presents with jaundice, or laboratory-based, with deranged liver enzymes in a cholestatic pattern or abnormal liver function tests. And three, characteristic imaging findings, such as the presence of biliary ductal dilatation with or without evidence of the etiology. The presence of evidence of systemic inflammation and any of the other two categories constitutes a suspected diagnosis, whereas the presence of all three makes for a definitive diagnosis. So, going back to our patient, you see a confused patient complaining of right upper quadrant pain and vomiting. The patient has scleral icterus, is febrile, tachycardic, and hypotensive. You first want to start with your ABCs, which are of critical importance to managing a patient with cholangitis. Is the patient protecting their airway? Are their hemodynamics stable? 
If not, should you transfer him to a monitored setting? And should you begin with resuscitation, including administering IV fluids and or vasopressors to help maintain their blood pressure? Once you're sure that your patient is stable, you can then move on to your assessment and management. As always, ensure that your patient has appropriate IV access. Give fluids as needed. Empirically start broad-spectrum antibiotics to ensure coverage of intra-abdominal organisms that may be gram-positive, gram-negative, or anaerobic in nature. If possible, ensure that you have drawn two sets of blood cultures before giving antibiotics, but do not delay initiation of antibiotics in a patient with sepsis. Once your patient is stabilized, it's then time to think about your workup and definitive management. Initial laboratory workup includes a venous blood gas, which should also contain a lactate, which can help assess perfusion, especially in the context of sepsis, a CBC, on which you may see neutrophilia or leukopenia, both of which can be present in sepsis, liver enzymes, which may be elevated in a cholestatic pattern, electrolytes and creatinine, as you might see a concomitant kidney injury, which would require fluids and correction of electrolyte abnormalities, coagulation profile to rule out a coagulopathy, lipase to rule out concomitant pancreatitis, particularly if the obstruction is more distal, and blood cultures, ideally at least two sets. As previously mentioned, imaging is crucial to the diagnosis of both acute cholecystitis and cholangitis. The abdominal ultrasound is the first line imaging of the biliary tree, thanks to its ease of use and access. In cholecystitis, an ultrasound is essential to make the diagnosis. Imaging findings include gallbladder wall thickening, pericholecystic fluid, or gallstones. In cholangitis, one might find dilatation of the biliary tree and possibly the source of obstruction, such as a stone or a mass. Other imaging modalities include CT scans. The most sensitive diagnostic modality remains the MRCP, or endoscopic ultrasound, also known as EUS, to identify the cause of the obstruction. ERCP is a diagnostic tool with high sensitivity and specificity, as well as a therapeutic tool with the additional possibility of treating the condition via sphincterotomy and or stenting. Now let's discuss the treatment options. For any infections, principles of treatment are twofold. First, select the appropriate antimicrobial therapy according to the common organisms associated with the specific infection, and second, source control. With this in mind, management of patients with acute cholecystitis will include antibiotics as well as potential plans to undergo a cholecystectomy, ideally in the acute setting. In contexts where a patient cannot go to the operating room, cholecystostomy tubes can be considered to decompress the gallbladder. Placement of endoscopic lumen-opposing metal stents is a novel technique that is showing promise in non-operative management of acute cholecystitis. As for patients with acute cholangitis, management will include antibiotics as well as relief of the obstruction, usually via endoscopic sphincterotomy with or without stenting. Other methods of drainage include EUS-guided drainage, percutaneous drainage, or surgical management. Timing of the relief of obstruction depends on the severity of the cholangitis. 
Severe cholangitis is cholangitis associated with septic shock and end organ damage and should be managed urgently. Moderate acute cholangitis is cholangitis associated with systemic inflammation, clinical obstruction, but no end organ damage and should be drained within 48 hours. Finally, mild acute cholangitis is cholangitis not meeting criteria for moderate or severe cholangitis, and source control can be obtained semi-electively. With regards to antibiotic choice, the goal is to initiate broad-spectrum antibiotics with gram-positive, negative, and anaerobic coverage. Thus, initial options include carbapenems or piperacillin tazobactam. Other options include ceftriaxone plus metronidazole or fluoroquinolones. As always, be mindful of the patient's allergies, renal function, hepatic function, comorbidities, and any known history of resistant organisms before starting any antibiotic regime. Time for a Medicine Minute. There is growing evidence for the use of EUS-GBD, or endoscopic ultrasound-guided gallbladder drainage, with LAMS, or lumen-opposing metal stents. This technique was initially developed for pancreatic fluid collection drainage. The approach implies an echoendoscopic view of the inflamed gallbladder via a transduodenal or transgastric approach. The gallbladder is then punctured, dilated, and a transmural stent over a guide wire is inserted. This results in gallbladder patency, drainage, and stone elimination. In a multi-centered, open-labeled, randomized control trial by Tio et al., 80 non-surgical candidates with grade 2 and 3 acute cholecystitis underwent EUS-GBD using LAMS versus percutaneous transhepatic gallbladder drainage or PTGBD within the first 4 to 6 hours post-diagnosis. EUS-GBD using LAMS was associated with reduced one-year adverse event rates, reduced need for re-interventions after 30 days, reduced unplanned readmissions and re-interventions, reduced 30-day adverse events, and a reduced recurrence of cholecystitis. It was also associated with reduced post-procedural pain scores and analgesic requirements. There were, however, no differences in 30-day mortality. Therefore, EUS-GBD with LAMPS seems quite promising in terms of safety, efficacy, and cost-effectiveness in patients with cholecystitis who are non-surgical candidates. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Biliary Off-Track, an approach to cholecystitis and cholangitis. This episode was written by Drs. Amin Zuglami and Ikram Abu Muhammad, internal medicine residents, and reviewed by Dr. Constantine Sulelis, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Sanabel Zabat, internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and is executively produced by Alison Lai, Zamorali, and Leia Karianopoulos theme song by Lakshma Vasantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic and resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.